The recent polar vortex weather in Texas caused a 130-vehicle pileup in Fort Worth. How did they cope? What can we learn? Today we're talking TIMS, Traffic Incident Management System. I'm Rob Lawrence, and this is EMS One Stop. Welcome to another edition of EMS One Stop Extra and today we're talking traffic incident management and the key thing really that we want to get across today and in not only the article but also in the guests I've got along is about the fact that we need to be working harder to understand how TIMS works, how we can get involved and obviously the lessons that we learned from the incident that we just saw a week or so ago in Fort Worth. Uh, before the long read I'd like to welcome my guests today. First of all Dia Gaynor. Dia is the Executive Director of the National uh, Association of State EMS officials and also within that uh, she's uh, very deeply involved in uh, TIMS and in road safety and when we introduce you dear we'll ask you to come back and give us some more detail of the, of the ways that you are you are involved and also the newly titled chief transformation officer matt zavadsky of medstar fort worth so both of you welcome for this morning's uh, podcast thank, thank you. you robin you missed your calling you should have been a shock jock oh wait you are I'm a shock jock. And uh, so, uh, we, Matt, the world knows what you do, which is great. But, Dia, um, obviously, Nesempso, for, for, for those that are sitting in the truck and listening now, just give us a little bit of background on Nesempso and obviously how you are even more deeply involved in traffic incident management. Sure, I'd be happy to. Well, uh, the members of Nesemso include your favorite state EMS office, all 50 states, the District of Columbia, and five territories. Uh, your most regular encounter is probably when you need to renew your EMT or paramedic license, uh, but they all have other important responsibilities, including regulating ambulance services and engineering systems of care for time-sensitive emergencies. Excellent. And now drill down a little bit into also your interests in traffic incident management. Yeah, well, I, um, I'm kind of the transportation junkie among state EMS <laughs> officials. Um, uh, I am a member of the uh, and chair of the Transportation Safety Advancement Group. We serve the, secret the assistant secretary of the U.S. Department of Transportation's Intelligent Transportation Systems Joint Program Office on anything in the intersection between roadway-related technology and public safety and emergency response. But more pertinent to Tim, I sit on the Federal Highway Administration's Transportation Incident Management Executive Leadership Group. And that group has been working on Tim issues at a national level that we want to penetrate down to the local level for almost 10 years. Well, wow. and that's why I asked you to describe all of that, dear, because that was such a huge mouthful, I couldn't even write it down fast enough. Um, also, I just have to say I'm doing Matt a disservice if I didn't mention that Matt is also the immediate past president of uh, NAMT, and what a fine job you did, sir, and thank you for your presidency. Don't feel like we have to do it again, though, Rob, seriously. <laughs> <laughs> 
So before we get into the, the discussion, uh, let's take a second just to uh, sit back for a second and listen to the long-form narration of this week's article, which is uh, Traffic Incident Management, Breaking Down the Roles of Police, Fire and EMS When Responding to a Major Traffic Incident. A week or so ago now, public safety response to an MCI in Fort Worth, Texas, was put fully to the test after more than 130 vehicles crashed after a night of freezing rain on I-35 West. Reports indicated that six people were killed and dozens injured amongst the wreckage, which included 18 wheelers as well as some public safety vehicles. Responding emergency crews continued to find new victims as they went from car to car, as well as rounding up victims who had walked off the site to take shelter at a local 7-Eleven. A police-run reunification centre was established and the city stood up an emergency operations centre. Against the backdrop of this tragic event, and the sobering fact that NHTSA reported a statistical projection that an estimated 28,000 would have died in a motor vehicle accident crash in the first nine months of 2020, it's worth looking at traffic incident management. Traffic Incident Management Systems, or TIMS, offers best practice and guidance for highway-related incidents, including technical guidance, training systems, and programmes for the fire and emergency services. TIMS also provides information on safe and effective management of emergency incidents that occur on roadways, including fires, collisions, hazardous material incidents and other incidents that expose emergency responders to the hazards of working on active highways. Most jurisdictions and some states have TIMS-related workgroups and active engagement is encouraged. Understanding the roles and responsibilities of each agency on the scene of a major traffic incident is useful and helps avoid frustration. Police and fire departments occasionally have conflicts about who has the lead responsibility, what actions have priority, where emergency vehicles should be situated, and who has priority for collecting driver and or patient information. These types of disagreements can become distractions at incidents and impair coordination. So what are the law enforcement roles then within TIMS? The primary law enforcement MCI responsibilities include securing the incident scene supervising scene clearance, and conducting accident investigations. Detailed tasks include assist in accident detection, secure the incident scene, assist disabled motorists, provide emergency medical aid until help arrives, direct traffic, conduct accident investigations, serve as the incident commander, safeguard personal property, and supervise scene clearance. Fire and Rescue Tim's roles the primary fire and rescue MCI responsibility includes protecting the incident scene, hazmat, containment, rescuing victims. Their detailed tasks include protecting the incident scene, providing traffic control until police or DOT arrive, providing emergency medical care, providing initial hazmat response and containment, suppressing any fires, rescuing crash victims from containment environments, arranging transportation for the injured, serving as the incident commander and assisting in incident clearance. And already we can see both sides are serving as incident commander, so that needs to be cleared up fairly quickly. EMS TIMS roles. The primary EMS MCI responsibility are the triage, treatment and transport of crash victims. Detailed tasks include providing advanced emergency medical care, determination of the destination and transportation requirements for the injured, coordination and evacuation with police, fire and ambulance or air transport, serving as the incident commander for medical emergencies, determining the approximate cause of injuries for the trauma centre and removing medical waste from the incident scene. 
In addition to the frontline public safety agencies, state department of transport agencies and towing and recovery companies could also be in the vicinity and on scene. In the aftermath of devastating incidents, coroner and medical examiner services will also deploy. Roles occasionally overlap or merge, which leads to confusion, frustration and occasionally handcuffs. As with every multi-agency operation, liaison and understanding are key. As with any major incident, after an MCI, the news will travel fast and the clamour of journalists and bystanders, both equipped with high-tech recording equipment, will get the message out before you can. Always be prepared to deploy a spokesman to the incident. This may well allow an immediate press conference at the scene with a voice from each participating discipline to describe the work they've undertaken. Agency PIOs can deliver key messages on the incident itself, the type of injuries being encountered, traffic flow and diversion, possible causation if determined, and the strong and solid work of the responders on scene. In the recent Fort Worth incident, the on-scene press conference was followed up with news stories of the actions of receiving hospitals, as well as interviews with those involved. EOCs and ICS. Familiarity and training breed cooperation, and as with all multi-agency operations, regular liaison and exercises, both tabletop and live, make for an easier operational day. The glue that bonds all operations is the incident command system, which offers an organised approach to the incident management and enables providers of all uniforms to speak the same language. The common terminology, modular organisation, integrated communications and the unified command structure inevitably assist in gaining order from the chaos. ICS isn't limited to large or major incidents. Many events inevitably see a group of functional leaders on the scene of a road incident or event co-located around the command board of the battalion commander or EMS supervisor's vehicle. For major incidents such as the Fort Worth MCI, a formal distant emergency operations centre can be stood up to ensure all aspects of not only the response but also the recovery, information, demobilisation and after actions are managed. Highway transportation safety research is constantly ongoing to make roadways safer, to protect those who operate on our highways, and to identify best practices. Here is a list of projects being carried out in response to a requirement in the Financial Year 2020 Consolidated Appropriation Act. The details of all of these studies can be read at the article at ems1.com, but those items currently being studied is a police pursuit study, move-over crash investigations, evaluation of efficacy of move-over laws and the influence of technology on driver behaviour, which is something that I've commented on actually in a previous article about move-over laws and distracted driving. Uh, the NASA uh, JPL, that's the Jet Propulsion Lab, Trusted and Explainable Artificial Intelligence for Saving Lives Project, or TruePal, move-over uh, crash data collection and analysis, and also the ITS JPO Equipment Loan Programme. Preparation, planning and exercise. Prior preparation, planning and exercise cannot replicate the raw emotion of responding to a devastating incident, but it can hone the necessary tactics, techniques and procedures to ensure the response goes well. As with every event, communication and understanding are key and, as has been said many times, the incident itself should not be the first time commanders meet. Kudos to those responders who managed the Fort Worth incident. So that was my views. And of course, I'd love to hear your views uh, at the comment section at ems1.com. But back to my guests. 
So this entire article was kind of spurred by the incident that happened at Fort Worth uh, last week, Matt. So why don't you give us a quick sort of overview of what happened and indeed how you guys responded? You know, it's amazing what a tenth of an inch of ice will do, Rob, um, in, in an area that isn't used to ice. This was a case where uh, the roads got pretty slick. It was a chain reaction collision. Um, estimates are that there were 133 vehicles involved in the crash, wow. multiple fatalities, um, and a huge challenge for all of the responders because it was freezing cold, it was dark, and it was slippery. And we had twisted metal as far as the eye could see and an unknown number of patients. So from the time that, I mean, in terms of response, how quickly did you ramp up to, I think I saw 30 or so vehicles that you committed to the scene. So how did it take you, or how did you, you know, ramp that up so quickly? Well, it was a, it was an early morning time frame. So we um, have a fair number of ambulances and, and support units on duty already that the first call came in about 20 minutes after six in the morning. And here's what the trigger was. And, and people who are listening to the podcast will, will appreciate this. First unit on scene gives their scene size up. And they said, we're going to need more ambulances. And, and the dispatcher said, okay, how many do you need? And, and the crew said, all that we have. <laughs> so right. it's like, okay, that was the sort of flag to everybody that this is going to be an all hands on deck MCI. And literally, because of the way that that high performance EMS systems work, we were able to get literally 13 ambulances, um, plus a bunch of support vehicles all on scene within about 20 to 25 minutes, um, and then start rotating crews off scene to come back get patients, etc. So we had all the patients that that we could get off scene that weren't in the process of being extricated or who weren't uh, dead on scene off that scene, Rob, within 90 minutes. That's fantastic. And I think there's a first takeaway there that uh, in a major incident such as this, obviously the first arriving ambulance is there to be almost the commander and the controller initially and should resist any temptation. And I've seen this myself where a cop or a firefighter will try and drag them into the casualty care before they've had the chance to do that bit of communication. So kudos to them for doing that. And, that, and that's a major takeaway. One of the things that I wanted to get into, though, particularly with this article and, and, and talking to you guys, is the roles, responsibilities and indeed comfort of operating with our other public safety partners, Matt. I mean, how did that go for you on the day? It went phenomenally well, Rob. This was a, a scene that was spread out, spread out over you know a quarter to a half mile, um, limited by a barrier, which was a, a row of vehicles uh, in the middle of the highway. It was in a, the express lanes of the highway, so northbound, southbound, um, and then you had that center lane. But the relationship that our field supervisors and our field staff have with fire agencies that they respond to, you know, three, 400 times a day played off perfectly because Jason got right on scene, our field supervisor, he got into the truck with the battalion chief on scene and, and, and they just started doing field incident command uh, right there and literally deciding early on, okay, we really need four casualty collection points. We need four mini scenes, ambulances coming from the north, from the south, on the eastbound side, westbound side, and as patients were being evacuated from the rec scene, being brought to one of those four quadrants really led to then, okay, so incoming ambulances, it was a dedicated tech channel for incoming units. They were told, are you coming from the north or are you coming from the south? Okay, you're going to go on the westbound lane, you're going to go on the northbound lane um, to come in, get patients, and then leave the scene. It was very, very well run because everybody knew everybody's first name. 
fantastic. And let me just cut across to Dia now. So that was the local situation that clearly worked. Dia, within the traffic incident management system, I mean, how can we start to prepare people if they haven't even heard of TIMS? And I mentioned the roles and responsibilities in the pod, in my uh, reading of the article itself, but where does somebody start if they haven't started already? Well, that's a great question, Rob. And not every community and not every local EMS agency enjoys the kind of the luxury of the well-organized multidisciplinary response that Matt just described. Um, the Traffic Incident Management Executive Leadership Group has been working on this, you know, for nearly a decade, starting out with a big, hairy, audacious goal of getting one million emergency responders trained in a standardized course on traffic incident management, and that every one of those courses be multidisciplinary, not just EMS folks in the room, not just law enforcement, not just transportation operations, but all the disciplines together. And as of literally last week, 515,000 public safety and emergency response personnel uh, have taken the TIM course. The problem, only 8% of the attendees are self-declared as EMS personnel. That's only 41,000 out of what state EMS officials count as 1 million EMS personnel in the United States. So there's more to do. And uh, when I dub the final version of this, dear, I will make a big alarm bell ringing because you mentioned BHAG there. OK, we all need a big, hairy, audacious goal. So I, I commend you for saying that. Um, but so not enough EMS folk are getting involved, but there's classes and there's also credit, I think, for doing this. Yes, both CAPSI and the National Registry have approved the TIM course, uh, the, the eight-hour course or the web-based learning, which is also available for continuing education purposes. So it counts and it matters. I spent 12 years in the field and, and routinely reported that cars whizzing by me on the highway sounded no different than bullets and they're no less dangerous. Absolutely. I think we've all had that experience. I remember back in the UK, my, my, my pack, my first impact got clipped by the wing mirror of a car coming past before I'd had a chance to get out of the way. And so that was, you know, my close call. And I'll always remember that, which has kind of spurned my interest in this. Communication, though, is key. And uh, there's been some horror stories in the past where because of the lack of understanding, I suspect, of how these things operate on the roadway, we have altercations, we have arguments, and dare I say, and, and certainly in one of my older organizations, we had handcuffs involved because people weren't understanding or liaising. Um, you know, Matt, that's something we have to get over, and clearly you've got over that, but uh, the communication aspect of that, I saw you actually on the BBC, would you believe, uh, talking to the world about the fact that this was a career event which really sort of you know struck me as yeah that's absolutely right um how did you deal with the comms piece again it's about relationships the the pios from the various agencies police fire and medstar literally as soon as that first in report came in we're texting with each other we're okay you go on i'm going where are we going to meet and the forward jick if you will because it's going right. to take a while to get an eoc stood up the forward jick ended up in my truck on the scene of the call because it was 10 degrees outside and I had the best heater and all three of us were in the vehicle at the same time. So we could coordinate messages. We could get the same information from the field staff um, and literally have that hip pocket. We're literally an arm's length away from each other with masks on, by the way, um, to coordinate the response. But even from the, the response communications, having the 
incident command staff know that we've got interrupt channels, everybody on scene is going to go to interrupt 10, and staging is going to be on dispatch four, and law enforcement traffic control is going to be on law IO3. It just made it very, very seamless. Excellent. And you've actually segued very nicely from Tim's into NIMS. Uh, I like the way you did that, because, of course, this is all about uh, speaking the same operational language. You mentioned joint information cell. Um, having one forward and on scene is, is key. Uh, I think your EOC did stand up, though, didn't it, a little bit later on? It did, but as with anything, it always takes a few minutes. Um, it took, I think, maybe 30, 45 minutes to get everything stood up. Then, of course, with the weather, it's stayed up for the next week and a half. <laughs> right, um, yes. <laughs> but just like they say with, with any type of large-scale disaster, the agency, the local community, needs to be able to support themselves for 72 hours. The scene needs to be able to support itself for at least that first 30, 60, 90 minutes until you've got an EOC stood up where you can request resources from. And that communication, again, went really, really well up to and including, hey, we need a rehab bus here with heat because we've got a bunch of, of uninjured or, or non-transporting people who are going to become hypothermic in the next 20 minutes unless we get them somewhere warm. And lo and behold, a, a shuttle bus shows up with a heater in it. It's just, you know, it's great. Right. So, Dia, are there any, you know, federal grants that people can apply for to help them get the necessary either training or equipment? to get into you know the traffic incident management way of life almost i don't know of any grants that individual ems agencies can apply for but there have been some very creative approaches used by state transportation departments and law enforcement agencies to make the training available free of charge as well as a few states who are setting up dedicated um, multi-roadway type track where in-person multidisciplinary bring all your vehicles training can occur. And that's, that's really, really important. I would also say that this is something that's not strictly an urban scenario. Um, rural uh, locations may have low frequency, but high criticality and even only four or five vehicles involved in a crash can make for a very, very hazardous scene for emergency response personnel. That reminds me of my, my I'm going to shout out my good friend, uh, Jan-Erik Nielsen, who runs EMS in Norway, Matt, and they, of course, have this this kind of weather uh, for most of their winter. And the way they deal with that single rural car crash is is actually have a tent that sort of bot, open bottom tent, they pop over the car and heat yeah. if they're going yep. to do an extraction. And then the other one, which I think is just genius, is where we do to we have lots of jaws of life, multi tools, uh, not multi tools, but to, you know a lot, a multitude of tools to uh, extract the patient in Norway because it's so cold. They chain the front of the truck to the front of the car to the tree, and the back of the vehicle to the fire truck, and just reverse. <laughs> what? <laughs> and if you think about yeah. mechanism of injury, it makes sense. They're just yeah. restretching it. And I've seen yeah. videos, they get the patient out within minutes because they are literally unconcertinering the car. It's fantastic to see it. Um, because you know, Rob, of course, weather is an issue and they have to deal with it quickly. I want to mention one thing, Rob. You know, our Department of Transportation, and I think a lot of um, agencies may do this, they have a bi monthly meeting with all the law enforcement, all the fire, all the EMS. Um, all of the various entities every two months. And we'd review significant car crashes for causes, um, the way the scene was managed. So I would encourage your listeners, if, if you haven't done that in your community, you be the one 
to set it up. Reach out to your local department of transportation, city, county, state, whatever it is. Um, reach out to all the agencies and do these after action reports each each month or each quarter. Uh, we do it bi-monthly to look at these major crashes and, and figure out, wait, A, why did the crash happen? Is there a way to make the road safer? But how is the scene managed? How long was the road shut down? Were there any issues on scene? Um, that builds relationships. And Rob, I would add, and remember, not just the organizations with lights and sirens, but those super important partners with just lights, towing and recovery, and highway incident response organizations. They're key partners as well. You make an excellent point. And uh, it was actually a year ago, I wrote an article about move over laws where I surveyed the amount of laws, move over laws, surveyed the amount of laws involving distracted driving. And we need to do more work on that. And the reason I did that is not only police, fire and EMS, as you say, personnel are up there, but the people that are taking literally, no pun intended, the biggest hits are the tow truck drivers. Um, and of course, they need, we need to you know, pay attention and move over for them too. And then there's those other people that come to the scene as well. And this may have happened to you, Matt, you know, the coroner's officer or someone from the medical examiner's office, um, you know, and then, of course, there's the whole demob piece, the tow trucks, you know, that scene must have taken a long while to tow stuff off. Plus, it was probably a crime scene. So all those other things to consider, too, right? Yeah. And that the last vehicle did not get off scene until almost 29 hours after the crash. Wow. And one of the most somber moments for all the people who were still there was when the multiple white unmarked vans pulled up with exempt license plates and you know why they're there, yep. but they can't get to the bodies until the tow trucks can pull the cars away. Um, it was a, it was a, a, a very quiet moment when that happened. I can imagine. I can imagine. Um, we are going to finish on a lighter note in a second, Matt, but uh, dear, any final thoughts on encouraging folk to become involved in traffic incident management? Well, I will say if, if you, you aren't clear on where and how to start it yourself, uh, to reach out, reach out to your state transportation department. Everyone has a designated point of contact traffic incident management. Even if you have to call the main number and start with that phrase, you'll find the right individual who's organizing the training, who's, who's uh, developing the notification lists for upcoming education events and, and become part of the change. Excellent. And uh, just to, to, to plug something that uh, myself and that other guru of uh, life other than Zavansky, uh, Tegman and I are doing a uh, session with the folk from Lexapol actually on grants, where to find them, how to find them, where to go to get them and how to write the works of Shakespeare to achieve them. And so that's coming up too. So hopefully we can tie that in with some perhaps some highway transportation safety grant stuff as well. Uh, Matt, we're going to finish on a light note, on a, on, a, on a joyful note, and that one of your guys was on his way to work, became involved in the incident in his Toyota. And tell us what happened next. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> Trey McDaniel, super great paramedic, was involved in the crash. He was in uniform. He was on his way to work. A, a lot of us didn't even know that he wasn't on one of the responding ambulances until we sort of looked at his, his injuries. Um, so his car was totaled. It was a Toyota FJ. He fortunately did not receive any major injuries. Um, but thanks to uh, some local media relations, the, his story got told and Toyota corporate picked up on the story and are giving him a brand. They don't make FJs anymore, which is what I really wanted, but they're giving him a brand new Forerunner TRD Pro um, to replace the FJ that, that he, and of course, they're going to have great PR as, as a result of, of that, course. but um, just a great, great outcome from a horrible incident. 
pray thank you for being not only a good Samaritan, but also for your service. Uh, fantastic story. A good one to end on. Um, I'd like to thank both of you for your time, uh, both of you for your expertise. Um, and uh, you guys are both on the national stage and have our interests truly at heart. And so uh, I'm sure we'll hear more from you in the not too distant future. Uh, but for now, guys, thank you very much. Thank you, Rob. Thank you, Rob. Thanks, dear. So that was uh, EMS One Stop for this week. Uh, tune in next week for another another topic and another podcast. Uh, I've been Rob Lawrence. You can follow me on LinkedIn or at UKRobL1 on Twitter. Till next time, bye for now.